Did you know that within a decade, women will hold $30 trillion in investable assets? Yet somehow, only 19% of women reported feeling confident in selecting investments that align with their long-term goals. Our friends at InvestHer are out to change that. InvestHer Con is the number one premier conference for women in real estate, and it's happening June 2nd through the 4th in Austin, Texas. InvestHerCon is not just another real estate conference. It's a transformational experience focused on real estate investing, business strategies, and self-care tactics, all designed to help women take control of their financial futures. Gain the knowledge and skills you need to grow your portfolio and build a sustainable business, all while connecting with over 500 women who are playing at the same level. To learn more and to get your tickets, visit InvestHerCon.com today and use the code 100BESTEVER to get $100 off your ticket. That's InvestHer, H-E-R, Con.com, promo code 100BESTEVER to get $100 off your ticket. In particular, there are two attorneys that you need to bring on your team, the real estate attorney and the securities attorney. Now, the main purpose of these attorneys is to help you with the creation and the review of the various contracts required to complete a syndication deal. Isn't it just the best when a software comes out that makes your life easier, makes you more money, and by the way, it's free? Well, welcome to Stessa, today's best ever sponsor. Stessa is a smarter income and expense tracking software for property owners. It allows you to track, manage, and communicate the performance of your real estate assets. So basically, it helps you make more money by looking at your properties in one dashboard. It's a beautiful dashboard, by the way. And it shows you the KPIs, the key performance indicators that you care about. What's the value? How much cash flow are you getting? What's the debt that you have on the properties? What are you bringing in monthly? What are you bringing in annually? And it allows you to have a quick snapshot, not only of your properties, but also come tax time, it's a breeze because you can scan receipts and invoices directly from the phone app and Stessa will automatically read and categorize them for you. No more data entry. It's been talked about in Forbes, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, and all it takes is just a few minutes to add your properties, link the accounts, and everything updates in real time. Without Stessa, I was looking at my portfolio on an infrequent basis. I'm talking about my single family home portfolio. I got three single family homes and I didn't realize that I had trapped equity. But if I was looking at it from a dashboard that Stessa has, then I would have realized that, hey, I got a portfolio value of X and I've got debt on it of Y. Holy cow, look at all this trapped equity. I'm missing out. And with Stessa, that won't happen. So go to stessa.com forward slash best ever. And it's free. It's free. Stessa.com forward slash best ever. There needed to be a resource on apartment syndication that not only talked about each aspect of the syndication process, but how to actually do each of the things and go into it in detail. And we thought, hey, why not make it free too? That's why we launched Syndication School and Theo Hicks will go through a particular aspect of apartment syndication on today's episode and get into the details of how to do that particular thing. Enjoy this episode. And for more on apartment syndication and how to do things, go to apartmentsyndication.com. 
or to learn more about the Apartment Syndication School, go to syndicationschool.com so you can listen to all the previous episodes. Hi, best of your listeners. Welcome back to another episode of the Syndication School series, a free resource focused on the how-tos of apartment syndication. As always, I'm your host, Theo Hicks. So each week we air a podcast series about a specific aspect of the apartment syndication investment strategy. And for the majority of these series, we will offer a document or spreadsheet or some sort of resource for you to download for free. All these documents, as well as the Syndication School series, past and future, can be located at syndicationschool.com. This episode is going to be part four of a four-part series entitled How to Build Your All-Star Apartment Syndication Team. So, so far, in part one, you learned the six ways to find the various team members, as well as the process for hiring team members number one and two, which are the business partner and the mentor. In part two, you learned the process for hiring team member number three, the property management company. In part three, which was yesterday, you learn the process for hiring real estate brokers, so team member number four. In this episode, we will be discussing the process for hiring team members five, six, and seven, which are your attorneys, the mortgage broker, as well as the accountant. And then lastly, we will discuss what order to actually hire these seven team members in. So team member number five is going to be the attorneys. In particular, there are two attorneys that you need to bring on your team the real estate attorney, and the securities attorney. Now, the main purpose of these attorneys is to help you with the creation and the review of the various contracts required to complete a syndication deal. And there are essentially four major documents that the attorneys will help you create or review. The first being the purchase sale agreement or the PSA, which is the contract between the seller and the buyer outlining the terms of purchase. So usually how it works is you look at a deal and when you submit your offer, you submit it in the form of an LOI, a letter of intent, which is a non-binding agreement that just shows your intent to buy at these specific terms. So then they'll review the LOIs, they'll have either a best and final seller's call or they'll just select the best offer and you'll be awarded the deal, at which point the process of signing the PSA begins. Usually the PSA is going to be created by the seller's real estate attorney, but make sure that if you are the buyer, that you have your real estate attorney review the terms of the PSA as well. Once you sign the PSA, you move on to the due diligence phase. And at that point, you will need to create document number two, which is an operating agreement. Now, there's going to be two different operating agreements. The first operating agreement is going to be for the general partnership. So it outlines the responsibilities and ownership percentages of the GP members. So if you remember, maybe it was part one. I'm not exactly sure which episode it was, but we discussed the fact that the GP is likely not going to be just one single person. There's likely going to be someone who is the acquisitions person, and maybe that person also does the asset management, but then someone else does the equity raising. But then maybe that person's equity raising has four or five people helping them raise money. So that's six people, and then you might have two loan guarantors, so that's eight people on the GP. So you're going to need an operating agreement between those eight members to determine who does what and what percentage of the GP do they actually own. And then you also need to create an operating agreement between the general partnership and the limited partners. 
So that outlines the responsibilities of both parties as well as how much of the deal the GP owns and how much of the deal the LP owns. And how does the compensation work and, and things like that. And both of these operating agreements are created by a real estate attorney. Now the third document is the Private Placement Memorandum, or the PPM, which is a legal document that highlights the legal disclaimers for how, essentially, the LP could lose money in the deal. So it includes a summary of the offering, a description of the property that's being purchased, information on the investment min and max amounts, the key risks involved with the offering, a disclosure on how the GP and LP are paid, as well as other basic disclosures like information on the general partnership, and a list of all the risks associated with the offering. So usually these PPMs are going to be at least 100 pages long for a 100-unit apartment building. So it's jam-packed with a lot of information. And this is going to be created by your securities attorney. So the first two, the PSA and the operating agreement, are the real estate attorney. And the PPM is where your securities attorney comes into play. And the fourth major document is going to be the subscription agreement which is a, essentially a premise by the LLC that is the purchaser of the property because typically you'll create an LLC that will buy the property and then your investors will buy shares of that LLC. So the subscription agreement is a premise by this LLC to sell a specific number of shares to the LP at a specific price. And it is also a promise by the limited partners to pay that price. And this is going to be prepared by the real estate attorney as well. So for these four documents, for the PSA, you could probably work with your real estate attorney one time to create a purchase-sale agreement template and then just have blanks for the property name and due diligence periods and things like that. So you'll likely only need to do that one time. The operating agreement, you're only going to need to do the operating agreement one time for the GP, but you'll need to create a new operating agreement for the GP and LP for each deal that you do. But again, that's with the real estate attorney. Private placement memorandum, similar to the PSA, you could probably make that once and then just do some slight changes for each deal. And then for the subscription agreement, again, that's going to be prepared for each deal, but you could likely have them create a template one time and then kind of pay them for their time to fill in the blanks. So those are the four documents that those attorneys will help you create. Other things that attorneys could do for you is to advise you on the best structures for your operating agreement. So for the general partnership, they can advise you on how to structure that as well as how to structure the LP and GP. And usually they'll send you like a questionnaire and you'll kind of fill it out. And then based off of that, they'll create the operating agreement and you kind of go back and forth and ask some questions on certain things you didn't understand or certain things you need more clarification on and you know, give them more explanation on your background, your business partner's background, what you're trying to do with the deal so they can help you create the best structure possible. And of course, you can consult with them on an as-needed basis. So if things come up legal-wise, then you can call up your real estate attorney and have a conversation with them about that. Now, each of these documents obviously costs money, and that's how the attorneys are going to be compensated. And technically, all of these will likely be made between putting the deal under contract and closing. You might make the operating agreement for the general partnership before you put a good deal under contract, but the PSA, the PPM, and the subscription agreement are things that are likely going to be created once you have the deal under contract. So you have to keep in mind how you are actually going to fund these legal fees before you close on the deal because you're not going to have investor money yet. So it's going to have to either come out of pocket or someone else is going to have to cover it. But you will get reimbursed at closing. So at least you'll get your money back as long as you do close. 
So these are ballpark numbers, how much it's going to cost for these four documents. And again, it's basically going to depend on how complicated the partnership is or how complicated the contract is going to be. Because I'm going to give you some pretty big ranges. So for the purchase-sale agreement, it could be anywhere between $1,000 to $5,000. For the operating agreements, I've seen it as low as $350 and as high as $5,000. For the PPM, this is when you're going to pay the big bucks. This could be anywhere from a few thousand dollars, but that's going to be unlikely, up to $40,000. So you're going to be somewhere in the $10,000 range, most likely. But if you're doing a super complicated deal, then expect to shell out 40 50 60 grand for this private placement memorandum. So maybe a great way to break into the apartment syndication industry is to become a securities attorney. And, you know, if you partner up with some investors, you can make a ton of money by creating these documents. Lastly, the subscription agreement is going to be similar to the operating agreement. So it could be a few hundred bucks to a few thousand dollars, depending on how complicated the structure is. So in order to actually qualify the attorney, these last three team members, you're not going to qualify them and sell yourself to them the same way that you did for the property management and the brokerage. Because they're more providing kind of a service that is you just pay them money and they do it for you. It's not you needing to win them over with your experience and background. It's just if you show them the money, then they'll create these documents for you. But there are a few things you want to do. You don't want to work with just any securities attorney or any real estate attorney. For securities attorney, it's really not going to be that big of a deal. You just want to make sure that they actually specialize in apartment syndications and they specialize in the type of apartment syndication that you're going to do. So the two major ones are going to be 506B and 506C which we'll talk about in more detail in future episodes, but just very high level. 506B, you're allowed to bring on sophisticated investors, so you don't just need to bring on accredited investors, but you must have a pre-existing relationship with all of your investors. So you can't find someone in bigger pockets to have them invest in your deal. You need to know them and prove that you know them. 506C is kind of the opposite, so it's accredited investors only, and these investors must be verified by a third party. And you as a syndicator are allowed to solicit for this money. So you can create Facebook ads. You can post about it on the bigger pockets marketplace. You can drop flyers from the sky. You can really do whatever you want with 506C in regards to soliciting for money. So those are kind of the major differences between the two. 506B again is you don't need accredited investors, but you must know your investors. 506C, accredited investors only, but you don't need to know them and you can actually advertise for your deals. So, That's for the securities attorney. And then similarly for the real estate attorney, you want to make sure that they have experience making operating agreements and subscription agreements for apartment syndications. So you don't want a real estate attorney that focuses on single family, for example. So essentially, you want to make sure that these attorneys know how to do exactly what it is you want them to do, and they're not learning on your dime. Now, you don't want to pay the attorneys until you're for sure going to close on a deal. Because you don't want to spend thousands of dollars on a PPM and a PSA and operating agreements if you don't end up actually doing a deal. So what you want to do is you want to first have like an intro call, 30 minutes, usually going to be free, just to qualify them. So again, make sure that they actually specialize or at least have experience in doing exactly what it is you want to do. So apartment indication 506B, for example. But you don't want to, after that, have them create your operating agreements and PPMs. Wait until you start actually looking at deals and you've got a deal that you are interested in buying before reaching out to them and saying, hey, it's go time to start creating these documents. So that's the attorney. Next is going to be the mortgage broker. So the mortgage broker, as the name implies, is going to provide financing for the deals. So that's their primary purpose and that's what all mortgage brokers are able to do. 
And additionally, you might find a mortgage broker who is willing to help you with the underwriting. So if you just find a deal that you're interested in submitting an offer on, you can send them the info and they will provide you with a ballpark loan terms. And they also might actually provide equity. A mortgage broker that I work with that they provide debt, but they also raise money from institutions. As long as you need to raise more than a certain number of of dollars, they can help you raise money for that deal as well. So primarily, they provide financing for deals, but they might have additional services as well. And like the property management company and the real estate broker, in order to earn these additional services, you're going to need to prove yourself. So we'll talk about that here in a few seconds. But how they are compensated first is they are usually paid closing costs and financing fees. That's what comes out of your pocket at least. And a good rule of thumb for closing costs is it's going to be around 1% of the purchase price. And the financing fees are going to be around 1.75% of the purchase price. So in total, around 2.75-3% of the purchase price is going to go towards paying this lender or mortgage broker. Now, in order for you to qualify them to make sure that they're in alignment with what you need, there are a couple of questions you want to have answered. And again, don't just ask them these lists of questions robotically. Just try to organically get this information out of them and do some research on them beforehand to see if you can figure out some of the answers to these questions. So one thing you want to know is how many deals they provided financing on in the last 12 months to get an idea of how active they are. Then you also want to know what types of loan programs that they offer to someone like you with your background. So explain to them your background, exactly what it is you're looking to do, and then ask them what's the best loan program that you have to offer. Do they offer agency debt? Do they offer bridge loans? Do they offer interest-only loans? What type of LTVs can they provide? So loan-to-value. What are the loan terms? Do they have three-year loans, 12-year loans, 30-year loans? Will the debt be recourse or non-recourse? If you don't know what those things mean, I will definitely do future episodes on lending and financing and loans. But for now, if you go to our website, joefairless.com, and check out the blog, you'll find different posts on agency versus bridge loans, recourses versus non-recourse, or even better, just Google Joe Fairless bridge loans or Joe Fairless recourse versus non-recourse, and you'll find information on that. But again, I promise you I will do future syndication school episodes focused solely on talking about debt. You also want to ask them, how do they qualify a deal? So what do they need from you in order to qualify you for financing? So usually, if you have a deal, they're going to ask you for the rent roll, the trailing 12 months profit and loss, as well as the offer memorandum and a pricing target. And then they will provide you with a quote based off of that information. And usually, they're going to provide financing based off of a loan to value or loan to cost. So what they'll do is they'll use the in-place NOI, or you might do some things differently like They might use T3 income, so the trailing three months income, and then maybe a combination of the 12-month income and then the 12-month expenses, or maybe they might use the expenses that you're going to project, but they'll use some sort of NOI. They all calculate it differently, as well as the market cap rate to determine what the value of the property will be, and then they'll fund a percentage of that. So that's what the LTV is. So an 80% LTV means that they'll fund 80% of the property value. So the value of the property is a million dollars then they will loan $800,000 and need to come up with the remaining $200,000. Now, loan the cost is based off of the value plus the CapEx cost. So if the all-in price is going to be a million dollars, so the purchase price is $800,000 and the renovations are $200,000 and the loan to cost is 80%, then they'll loan $800,000 and you'll have to come up with the remaining $200,000. And usually loan to cost is for bridge loans, which are these 
shorter term construction type loans for properties that can't qualify for agency debt. Now, they might also take the debt service coverage ratio into account. So essentially, that is a ratio of the net operating income to the mortgage payments. So they'll obviously want to see a net operating income that's higher than the mortgage payments. The standard minimum is going to be 1.25 for agency debt and around 1.14 for bridge loans. And again, that's based off of the in-place NOI or however they calculate the NOI. And they will use that plus the minimum debt service coverage ratio to determine the maximum amount of debt service or monthly mortgage payments that you'll pay. And then they'll kind of back calculate how much money they can lend you based off of the maximum amount of debt service the property can qualify for. You're also going to want to ask them how much financing that you will actually qualify for. So ask them how much they can actually loan to you personally. So again, they're going to base it off of the LTV, maybe debt service coverage ratio. But at the end of the day, they're going to need someone to sign on the loan that meets the liquidity, net worth, and experience requirements, which if you don't remember what those are, go back to listen to part one. That's where I have the conversation about the loan guarantor. And the loan guarantor is a person who signs on the loan to help you qualify. So Let's say, for example, you are buying a million dollar property and they're willing to lend you $800,000, then you're going to need to have a net worth of $800,000 as well as experience with a similar size deal and then some sort of liquidity requirement. So it might be 10% or 15% of the $800,000. And so if you don't meet that, then you're going to need to bring someone or someones on to help you design the loan and then you're going to compensate them. And so again, I've talked about the loan guarantor in part one of this series. But to determine how much you actually qualify for, they're going to ask you to fill out a personal financial statement. So you fill out all your financials, credit history, net worth, things like that, and they'll figure out exactly how much money that they can lend to you. Now, in order to win them over and ideally have them provide you with better financing, to provide you with estimates on financing when you're underwriting, as well as maybe if they're equity raisers, they trust you enough to have their investors invest in your deal. Here are a few things that you can tell them or that they're at least going to ask you when you're talking to them so that they can actually qualify you as an investor. So they're going to want to know who your property management company is. They're going to want to know the statistics on them. So how many units do they manage? What size of these units? Are they local? What type of properties do they focus on? They're also going to want to know exactly what your business plan is. So what type of property are you buying? Value-add property. What's the cost going to be? What's the number of units? What do you expect to pay for CapEx costs? Is it going to be a certain dollar per unit? How much do you expect to pay for exterior renovations? What's your plan for when you actually take over the property? So how long will it take to implement these renovations? How long will it take to increase the occupancy rates? Essentially, what's your five-year pro forma look like? Or seven-year, depending on how long you're going to hold on to the property, which is the last thing they want to know about your business plan is what's your hold period? So you're going to hold on to it for one year, five years, ten years, and definitely they'll want to know that as well. They'll also want to know how you're going to fund the deal. So how much money are you personally going to put in the deal? And then how much money are you going to raise? And then who are these investors and how do you know them? They're also going to want to know what the LPGP structure is. So are you bringing on debt investors or equity investors? If debt, what interest rate are you paying them? What's the balloon period? If equity investors, what's the preferred return? What's the profit split? They'll want to know all these things. They'll also likely want to know how you plan on funding the upfront costs, so the costs between contract and close, so earnest deposit, due diligence fees, the legal fees I just talked about earlier. How are you going to fund these things? They're also going to want to know what your multifamily experience is because most lenders are going to have a very vague experience requirement that they can't necessarily communicate to you during the initial conversations, but 
the, the best explanation I've heard is that you need to have experience with a similar deal in the past. So if you don't, then you're going to bring on a loan guarantor who does. And then you're also going to want to talk about your team members and their experience as well, particularly the property management company, because they're going to want to see the contract between you and the property management company to make sure that the company who is managing the property will take good care of it because, again, the lender wants to get paid every month. And then lastly, they're going to ask you to fill out that personal financial statement to determine your liquidity, net worth, credit history, existing debt, things like that to qualify you for financing. Now, the last team member is going to be the accountant, and the accountant will do your yearly taxes. They will create the Schedule K-1s, the tax documents for your investors at the end of the year. Ideally, they help you with ongoing bookkeeping, and then they should provide you with general tax advice as well as some tax planning services. And then maybe this is what you decided to pursue. They could help you with a 1031 exchange on the back end. So again, similar to the lawyer, you don't really need to win over an accountant. Just pay them money and they'll what you pay them to do. But like all the team members, you want to qualify them to make sure they're a good fit. So one important thing to know is if they currently represent apartment syndicators because you don't want them learning the apartment syndication business plan and the tax benefits for apartment syndications on your dime. They should already know what types of tax deductions you can take, and also knows the apartment syndication business model. You're also going to want to know how their fees are structured. So get an understanding of exactly how you're going to be charged. So is there a fee each time you call them, or do you put them on a monthly retainer and you can call them whenever? Do these ongoing fees include the tax return at the end of the year, or is that separate? Do they do bookkeeping, and how much do they charge for that? Things like that. You also want to know who's going to be your point person. So are you going to be communicating back and forth with a partner or will it be a mid-level accountant or will it be someone right out of college? Ideally, it's at least a mid-level accountant, but even better would be the partner. You also want to know how conservative or aggressive their tax positions are. And that should obviously align with your preferences. So if you're very conservative, then you want a conservative accountant. If you're very aggressive, you want an aggressive accountant. But if you do get an aggressive accountant, you also want to know how that info will be communicated to you and whether or not you have the final say of whether you can deny or accept those tax positions. You also want to ask if they have a secure portal to transfer sensitive files back and forth, which they probably will, but that's important because tax documents include important information, like your social security number, how much money you make, things like that. And so if it's not a secure portal, then you might run into identity theft issues. So you want to just confirm that They're not just sending information back and forth via regular email. You also want to know how proactive they are with tax planning and how the tax planning services work. So obviously you want them to be proactive and be up to date on the tax code and then get some information on how tax planning works and see if that aligns with what you're looking for. You're also going to want to know if they're able to file tax returns for all state and local governments in the country because you might move or you might change markets and You still want to work with this accountant and not have to start over with someone else. You also want to ask them what they expect of you, just to set expectations earlier. So, you know, what do they expect you to send them? When do they expect to send it to you? How do they expect conversations to go? Things like that. And lastly, this is a big one. You want to know when they will send you the investor K-1s. A big thing that you'll hear from passive investors is that the syndicators either don't send the K-1s on time or the K-1s are incorrect. So we pride ourselves on sending the K-1s by March 31st each year. So we just want to confirm with the accountant when they will get those to you by and what you need to do in order to stay on schedule. So that's the accountant. Again, 
really the only way to win them over is just to pay them. So whatever compensation structure they have, just make sure you pay them on time. And that, you know, obviously when they tell you what they expect out of clients, you, you meet that and don't go overboard. So lastly, let's talk about what order to hire your team members in. So again, your team members are going to be a partner, a mentor, a property management company, real estate brokers, attorneys, mortgage brokers, and accountants. So here's the best path forward for someone who had none of these. By the end of the day, it's really up to you. This is just what I found to be the best way because, again, if you remember, when you're trying to win some of these people over to your side, you're leveraging the experience of other team members. So if you don't have that team member yet, then you're leaving a lot of leverage on the table. So here's what I did. So first, you want to start with a mentor. So kind of start very high level, find a mentor who's, again, active apartment syndicator who is, is successful. So they're doing deals that at least meet their projections, ideally exceed those projections. And then from there, you should work on finding a business partner. So with the mentor, you'll learn a lot about apartment syndications, and then you'll learn what you like and what you're good at and what you suck at. And then you can find a business partner to complement your strengths. Once you have a mentor and a business partner, next is to work on getting verbal commitments from investors, which is going to be the focus of the next series. So the next series in the syndication school is going to be all about passive investors. Not sure how many parts it's going to be yet, but it's going to be a long one. So once you get your verbal commitment from investors, next is to start reaching out to property management companies and mortgage brokers. And then once you've got your property management company and your debt lined up and your equity lined up, a business partner and a mentor, that's when you start looking for real estate brokers because at this point you're ready to start looking for deals. And then lastly, either as you're looking for deals or after you find a deal, you can start reaching out to attorneys and accountants. So that concludes this series. In this particular episode, part four, you learned the process for hiring these final three team members, which are the real estate and securities attorney, the mortgage broker, and the accountant, as well as what order to actually hire these team members in. So to listen to part one through three of this podcast series, which is how to build your all-star apartment syndication team and to download your free team building spreadsheet document, as well as other syndication school series about the how-tos of apartment syndications, make sure you visit syndicationschool.com. Thank you for listening, and I will talk to you next week. Finally, there's a simple way to track rental performance. Stessa, our best ever sponsor, lets real estate investors track, manage, and communicate the performance of our real estate portfolios for free. Go to stessa.com forward slash best ever. You'll always know how your properties are performing with this dashboard. It's a beautiful looking dashboard, and it will help you save time with smarter income and expense tracking You don't have to do any more data entry. Just upload the stuff directly from your phone. It tracks it in real time. Get organized for tax time with tax-ready financials so you can download them instantly. This thing was built by investors for real estate investors. It's been featured in all the publications you can think of. To get set up with your free account, just add your properties, link your accounts, and everything else updates in real time. Stessa.com forward slash best ever. S-T-E-S-S-A dot com forward slash best ever to get started.